Hello, and welcome to Creating Hope Together. This is a special podcast as I welcome in a guest host to the show today. So sit back, get comfortable for the Creating Hope Together podcast with your hosts, Peter and Rebecca. Well, hello. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining Pete and I today on our discussion of recovery and recovery treatment options, alternatives, all the fun facts you never knew you wanted to know about recovery. Um, and we, t- we talked a few times now about our own personal experiences with recovery and you know what works for us, what our our individual personalized uh, methodologies are for maintaining our sobriety and um, you know though we may have different approaches perspectives the one thing we have in common is that we have that we've made the choice and we have the desire to remain to be and remain sober so with that uh, we discussed looking into you know percentages like what are the numbers what are the numbers telling us for 12 step versus mutual help or secular organizations um so that's what we're gonna talk about today and i would turn it over to pete fantastic intro there uh, and rebecca thank you for that um so what i did was i was looking at some of the really the I went after the some statistics of um, <clears throat> what are we facing, you know, really in the in this country and uh, some of the the big big numbers, really, you know. For instance, you know, fifty three million um, or nineteen percent of Americans over the age of twelve have used an illegal drug, you know, in the past year. These are some of those things that. Uh, you didn't know you wanted to know, but here we are. Um, the uh, 11% of Americans over the age of 12 are regular illegal drug users. The um, 39% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 25 years old use drugs within the last year. of people who tried drugs before the age of 13 will develop uh, an addiction within seven years of that time. So, and the thing, you know, these lists goes on and on. This is just general uh, drug use, which can be from uh, airplane glue to alcohol to marijuana to cocaine to, you know, variety of illicit drugs. Um. Now, then, of course, we know we have had the opiate crisis, the way people got from, I guess it probably started with uh, opiate, the opiate crisis, then, or went from meth to the opiate to the heroin to get off the opiates to uh, just now fentanyl. And we all know if we just turn on the news for five minutes, we can, we hear about this, the fentanyl crisis out there. So there is quite a need out there for really the information that we're putting out 
on our podcast. Um, so the but kind of by the numbers, I, I'm not going to go a ton in, but there have been um, 28,000 plus fentanyl related overdoses in the last year, 17,000 prescription opioid related overdoses, and then 15,000 heroin related. So there's no time like today for us to examine and do, uh, I'm almost thinking, you know, more than likely part one or part whatever of this and start just feeding information out there of what to do, where to go, what are some of the warning signs, what are, what can people do? Because in all the research that I was doing, and I think Rebecca might come up with this same thing as well, is that uh, we can recover, you know, and what was the one thing I didn't mention? The oldest known drug demand, and that's alcohol, you know, and that just, you know, I don't necessarily care or if that could be a gateway drug or because it does just as much damage as the other things as well. You know, breaks down body parts, liver, uh, destroys things, destroys families, destroys lives, and it can also uh, kill you. So these numbers that are out there, I would recommend anybody just start Googling or looking at some of the numbers. Even uh, marijuana is in there. You know, 43% of college students report using marijuana. You know, that's, all, that's almost half. Um, Marijuana-related emergency room visits increased 54%. Uh, suicide in which marijuana was found present in toxicology reports uh, increased from 7%. To twenty three percent, so that's yeah, that's quite a it's huge, you know. And why is that? Well, I think the marijuana that um, your the older folks used to smoke, uh, I guess back in my day, a long time ago, uh, the percentage of uh, THC in that was probably around two to three percent. Uh, now with these hybrids and the growth operations and um, the way that they're splicing these, the marijuana and the cannabis together, they're getting up to 15% uh, THC levels in those. And, you know, the reactions there are obvious. Uh, the leading states currently, you know, West Virginia, unfortunately, West Virginia was the number one state in overdose deaths uh, by 51.5 deaths per 100,000 people. And yeah, it's very sad. And I would have to look into it a little bit deeper, but I believe West Virginia was number one in the meth epidemic. They were definitely number one in the opiate and more than likely number one in the heroin and probably, I do believe also number one now 
in the fentanyl. So West Virginia is is really being devastated um, right under our noses, right as we speak today. So those are some of the stats that I have. And I do have some um, statistics also on uh, drug addiction. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to jump in and go over a couple of the things that you found or some questions on this data? some questions um now other countries have instituted programs you know needle exchange programs or safe drug use sites uh scandinavian countries western european countries um and i wonder if if that would be i mean it's not going to curb addiction it's not going to it's not going to curb addiction but it curbs fatality, addiction-related fatalities, right. which I think was a positive thing. Um, I don't see any downside to having safe needle programs in cities because, you know, with all of the emotional baggage that comes with being an addict or an alcoholic, whatever your drug of choice is, all the emotional baggage that comes with that you also have the physical baggage, you know, the being maybe you're unsheltered. You have been cast out of, you know, your family, family environment. You have to maintain some sort of, um, you have to maintain some sort of sobriety. And for many addicts, sobriety is getting, you know, getting, getting well in a, in a way, in a sense, you know. So I wonder if, you know, if, not to, we're not going to curb addiction, but maybe some safe drug use sites. And I also wonder with um, the advancing movement of legalization of marijuana across the United States, I wonder, I wonder what impact that may have on rates of addiction, positive or negative. Um, you know, some people do use marijuana or THC, CBD as medicine for you know, soft muscle muscle tissue damages, um, you know, endometriosis. Some people use THC or CBD for that. Um, and I just wonder where, where the line is with marijuana. Because as far as I know and in my experience, there's nothing really addictive about marijuana, marijuana chemically. Other, you know, the addiction is, you know, the, the ritual of it, getting... The product, ingesting the product, the social ritual of it, um, and the psychological release that you think you're getting by getting high, you know, smoking a joint, a bowl, vaping, however you ingest, um, you know, or making some brownies, whatever you do with it. Um, so I wonder what this advancing or this, this movement that's gaining steam nationwide to legalize marijuana would do to addiction rates. Um, but like you said, the oldest addictive substance that we have in our society is alcohol. And that's been legal for everyone forever. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's such a unique, unique drug because it is legal, it's celebrated, it's restricted, and then that restrict it's restricted until people are twenty one, and then that restriction there's a cultivated enticement in the, the 
ritualistic participation of it when you're 21. Go out, you do 21 shots, right? Or whatever you do, bar crawls or keg parties and keg stands and all the, all the things that go along with alcohol um, that are that are so forbidden until you reach this this monumental birthday, and then you can plunge headlong into socially accepted addiction. And then once you speak up about it, you know, you're stigmatized and you're outcast because you don't go along with the prevailing idea that imbibing alcohol is a good time or a positive and productive thing. So I just wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder why the disconnect between people being against the legalization of marijuana, but celebrating alcohol use, or even moving to lower, I know some people have made the argument to lower the drinking age to 18, because if you can die for your country, why can't you go out and have a beer? So I just wonder why there's a disconnect there, um, since you uh, mentioned alcohol. Um, yeah. I think, okay, so a couple of things there. I think, so we happen to have here in, in my state is a uh, recovering alcoholic governor. And she <clears throat> is dead set against the legalization of it. Uh, we have a medical marijuana law or medical CBD, and it's extremely difficult to to use it. Um, stock of the product is, is rare. So there's the difficulty there. And I think it's a matter of her perspective of how she thinks that she believes that marijuana is a gateway drug to... Uh, harder drugs, but I don't know if she thinks that the marijuana is a gateway to alcohol or if, if she's kind of has that separated out, if she thinks marijuana will go to meth, heroin, opioids, you know, things like that. I just, I'm not sure about that. Um, so I know here um, there's great resistance and then I don't see it happening uh, for quite a while. I think in Colorado, I think what they saw was um, a dollars. And when they legalized it, that it was proven to be true that, I mean, they're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that they made on that the sales of that. <clears throat> now, as far as the needle injection sites, I must be very jaded or really skeptical because um, <clears throat> I don't think that's a, a very popular thing uh, because somebody hasn't figured out how to make money off it and how to profit off it. I will say it as today um, that now I just Googled here, nation's first supervised drug injection sites in New York City. Uh, during the first official day in operation, 
at the two Manhattan facilities, trained staff reversed two ODs um, in that in at that site. So if it's about saving lives, there's two, you know, two lives that they were able to save on day one. So, and it's really just an attempt to curb, you know, overdose deaths caused by this process. And I was watching a documentary the other day and it was um, kind of how, you know, they're, these folks are still, are actually using fentanyl. They've got it in that powder form and they're taking it out of that baggie. But when they're at a site like that, at a supervised site like that, they're, they're able to kind of say, you know, that, okay, this is, this is the right amount or this is, you know, one doctor said, you know, six grains of fentanyl can get you high, eight grains of fentanyl can kill you, you know? So, but with the site, um, does it promote it? I don't think it promotes it. I just think it makes it safer. It makes it smarter. Um, there's got to be information there for people that are are hoping to maybe kick it and get into some kind of a treatment program, trying to help. Because really the only people that, uh, not the only people, but the people that have that desire to stop drinking, they had to do something first. And I always call it walk through the door. You know, you walk through the door of a treatment center. I walked into a treatment center as well and saw something that I wanted. And I walked into the doors of a meeting where, okay, now whatever, the collective can start helping me and uh, doing that. But you had to get in the door first. And I think with these sites like that, I think there should be more of them. I think there needs to be more of them. Um, but the problem is, is that there it's probably public money. And public, the public, certain sections of the public don't want to, uh, you know, foot the bill for it. Uh, they'd yes. rather foot the bill yes. on the back end. Yes. You know, they're still footing the bill. So um, it's a very, I, I hate to say it, but it's probably an extremely politicized issue. And once it gets there, then. We're in yeah. trouble. Yeah, definitely. But you mentioned something you said something that you said getting in the door and getting in the door, either a treatment center, a, a, a meeting, a recovery group of some sort. And we talked to you talked about numbers and I was, I, my, my, research or my investigations here were mostly focused around alcohol and what I found was people in recovery or looking for towards recovery are very hot out, out of the gate they go all in and then it fades it trickles off you know uh, consistency falls off um, persistence in recovery because you have to be persistent that falls off and in some cases, especially with um, uh, women or other minority groups, um, there's a lack of seeking out treatment because there is such a stigma 
And there's also just a lack of cultural or societal support for women or other minority groups to seek help because in some sense they're already overburdened with responsibilities or, you know, they may or may not be, if, if it's a sexual minority group that we're discussing, you know, they may or may not be out. If they are out, they may be, uh, they may have been, you know, cast out from their family or, you know, socially um, marginalized in some way. So going to seek treatment either at a center or in a community organization would compound the stigma that they already face. So I wonder, you know, what, what can, what can we, and by mean, we, I mean, you know, society, but treatment groups, centers, recovery, or recovery organizations in general do to combat compounding the stigma to encourage people and support people more to say, you know, I, I recognize that I need help and I recognize that this is the place where I can get help. How, how do we, how do we, how do we make the connections? How do we make it more accessible and how do we break down the fear of more stigmatization? Because what I found was in, I'm sorry, in, in looking at these different, different studies that I found, you know, women, you know, women of color um, and Latino women kind of go in an inverse with alcohol use and alcohol misuse um, than white women. White women tend to go hard when they're very young and then, and then kind of curb their drinking as they age, at least what's been reported. Whereas uh, women of color you know, black women, Latino women, that from the studies that I've seen are not as, are not as, um, invested in drinking in their young, early twenties until later in their forties, as it's been reported, you know, 35 to 45 range, the, the numbers kind of go up for those populations. So I just wonder, you know, where was I going with this? I just wonder, you know, what, what stops them reporting their drug use or alcohol use, drug and alcohol use, and what can we do to make it less of uh, an added stigmatization to a minority person, right. a woman of color, a sexual minority, anything like that? Yeah. Wow. That's that's a great question. So it's kind of what popped into my head is, um, you know, your question could be, how do we build their door? How do we build that door for them to come on through and say, hey, this is, you know, because I can only imagine the stigma that's already compounded by, um, you know, just because it says in there, uh, creed, race, religion, lack of religion, sexual identity, it doesn't matter. You're all welcome. But still, Culturally, they're still now having to add this new stigma on top of, you know, it's like, the is it the straw that's going to break that camel's back and they would rather just stay in, in their, in the mode that they're in? <clears throat> that is a very interesting question. And one of the things that I 
things I found, and I think this is goes across all, all the entire spectrum of substance use disorder, is that recovery programs were designed for one specific group. That was men, white men. So, you know, what what does that say? Like, what what hope does that give to a person of color, a, a, a woman, a person who identifies as female, who is a person of color? Like, how does that? How do we, how do we, how do we manage that? And I just, um, and what, you know, and what can we do to make it less of a, less of a do or die? Right. right. No, I know, no drug use is an alcohol use or use, you know, that you're, there's a chance that you could overdose. There's a chance you could get be in a fatal car accident, liver failure, congestive heart failure, all of these horrible things, these attendant problems that come with uh, substance use disorder. But I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think that the do or die of some recovery or programs is welcoming. You know, uh, the treatment center I went to was great. I'm sober. It was awesome. I love it. And I'm I, in fact, reached out to them earlier this week or late last week about going back and speaking. But um, I just don't agree with, you know, living for today and only today. You know, I think in the one day at a time thing, I think, you know, you have to live maybe three days in the future because you need to, you need to, <laughs> I, uh, uh, but but for me, and you know, it's you know, it's an individual process and and uh, curation of recovery, I guess. But you know, for me, I needed to plan at least three days in advance, you know, because if I, I lose it today, I don't have a tomorrow. So I want to look for tomorrow and keep today. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. You know, and then usually my my wry sense of humor throws up and says, well, we are talking about gender. And so seeing though I'm a guy thinking three days ahead is a daunting task. I don't know how I'm going to ever achieve that. You know, let me just get, you know, to tomorrow. I could think till tomorrow. That's good. But I know you are very scheduled and, and you like that, you know, I work better, you know, ahead when I have a schedule, I'm kind of a, still the old fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. But I think though, what comes to my mind when I was, uh, when I got clean in Minneapolis, um, there is, you know, there's like a huge circle around the city. <clears throat> and um, so I'd go, first meeting I went to was my ended up kind of being my home home group. There's, you know, 100, maybe 100, 150 people in there. And uh, you break down into small groups, you know, and then talk about whatever the topic was or what have you. And then started going out and about. And so growing up in, you know, North Minneapolis, in the, you know, in an urban setting, going to school, in just outside of downtown Minneapolis, uh, going to meetings there, you would see uh, a huge representation of the uh, in ethnic 
community at the meetings. So I think you would be surprised at how uh, that they do have a place and they know there's a place for us as addicts, no matter what your color is, no matter what uh, your sexual identity is, it just didn't matter. Because I think in the inner city, that's, I think that's okay. I think once you get out into a, a larger or a different space, maybe that could be more of a, more of a factor. Um, but by your reporting, it sure sounds like there's a gap there by what you've seen or what you researched. Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, the, the number of <clears throat> unreported abuse in sexual minority groups or, you know, um, ethnic minority groups is astounding. Uh, and I just, I just wish there was a way to uh, remove the fear of stigmatization. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's, and, yeah. I, I, you know, I deal also in uh, a lot of mental health, uh, mental health things, uh, early childhood traumas, all that, um, you know, and the stigmatization there is, uh, um, that is probably the most difficult thing to overcome and to eliminate. And I think the more we say it and the more information we keep putting out there about it, I think that's where um, we're going to find, you know, more answers and it's gonna become less and less of a stigma, the more it just takes, gonna take time, time and time. The, um, there's definitely information out there, um, you know, 12 step recovery for the atheist and for the agnostic and uh, things like that, where they do take out the word um, God. And um, they, I, I don't think, you know, for those folks that if that one word is the difference from them stepping across that threshold and coming in or staying out, then <clears throat> there has got to be that you have to, you know, there has to be an option there, or I would hope that there's going to be, they find an option there to get into a, at least the, the first piece of it whether it's a constant going to meetings, going to meetings, or a, uh, a uh, program, a treatment program that doesn't have it, because it's enough of a, a barrier to try to uh, um, do that, whether uh, without the God thing or the religion thing. Um, for me, it was, it was like, I, I think I had, we talked maybe off, the record to where you know grew up in the Catholic Church and altar boy and all those things that come with that. Um, so it was kind of difficult for me at first, and then um, I tried to uh, 
lower its importance on the actual word and focus on what the rest of the process was saying, you know, to get better, to um, use these new tools that I have. You know, I knew I was powerless over my addiction and because I couldn't stop. And um, the next steps gave me power. And, um, but it was actually me doing the work and going in there where there was a higher power giving me assistance. Great. But um, that is a very contentious thing in the, with the 12 step. And I think that's where, isn't there like a, uh, another program that you had looked at an alternate treatment recovery program that you looked at that, that kind of took that right out of there or. Um, the God thing. Yeah. The smart uh, thing. Yeah. Well, actually I have a PowerPoint that I can share. Pray tell. You do? <laughs> <laughs> well, fingers like, crossed oh. the technology is on our side and I can do it. Let's see. Um, uh, uh, okay, so recovery. You have options. Um, these are just some terms that I found that uh, through my research um, about dependence, the last, um, the last box there is... Um, is the website where I where I found these, but, but the terms are still dependent, partial remission, asymptomatic risk, low risk, and abstainer. Um, which uh oh, how do I get back here? Um, and no, now I don't know how to. <laughs> sorry, technical difficulties. I don't know how to change the page. Um, let me go back here. Okay, an abstainer. Uh, these, and these are, goodness gracious, sorry, sorry, technical difficulty. Um, these are elements that I found that are common in recovery, um, abstinence in recovery, essentials in recovery, enriched recovery, spirituality of recovery. And spirituality, I should note, is not strictly limited to a, a God figure or the traditional like theistic religion. It's just, I think I think I provide the definition here. Um, abstinence. I think that's pretty well self-explanatory. Essentials of recovery. One thing I did find throughout all the recovery programs that I looked at was community being just you know finding a community that supports your your new life because you are essentially a new person you're i always think of it as you know i was born again it was my birthday you know just i'm a completely different person now than i was when i was in my active my active addiction um and you do have to do all of these things are essential being able to deal with challenging situations in healthy ways in your relationships, dealing with your negative feelings, dealing with your family and friends, because not all of your family and friends are going to support you in your recovery and dealing with your mistakes, either mistakes you made while you were in active addiction 
mistakes you made while you were in recovery or mistakes you've made once you're recovered. You just have to learn how to deal with all of that without the crutch that you've depended on for however long. Um, you just have to be honest and realistic. Um, you're going to change everything about your life. You're going to change the way you walk into a store, the way you walk into, uh, you know, your house, wherever you live, the way you drive is going to be completely different. All of these little things you never thought would be affected. I remember I went, I went to the movie that I had seen a million times and I thought, I've never seen this sober. This is amazing. It's just, and it was one of my favorite movies. Why it was my favorite movie? I couldn't tell you because I was drunk all the time, you know? It's just these crazy things. Um, Physical changes, you know, whether you use to get well, you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to have all this extra time on your hands. You know, I I struggled for so long. What do I do with myself? Because it's it's five o'clock somewhere, you know? I, I didn't know what to do with all this time. And I didn't know what to do with, the time that I recovered not being hung over, it was a crazy, crazy thing. Um, elements to enrich recovery. I think what spirituality in the previous slide refers to is something that gives you inner peace. I mean, it can be a God or a God figure, whatever you like, but I think it means, you know, finding an inner peace and finding something that, that, that compels you to maintain sobriety. See, um, spirituality and recovery, connection, community, giving back, gratitude, helping others. Gratitude journals were a great way for me to start down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's it technically doesn't have to. It's not specific to religion, and I forget where I was going with this. Ah, here we go. Not faith based. 12-step alternatives. So here we see SMART recovery, which is spelled recovery, spelled wrong, I just see now. Um, but uh, SMART is based on, you know, CBT theory, cognitive behavior, behavioral theory, which is think it, act it, that's connecting your thoughts and your actions, right? Like uh, dialectical behavior theater theory, it's the same kind of thing. Like you talk with your, your body language, you talk with your body. It's a thinking body, feeling mind sort of thing. Like your body, your body thinks and your mind feels, and it's just connecting those and making them kind of act in, in unison. Um, there's refuge recovery, which is a Buddhist based 12 step. Uh, it has a good success and retention rate. Uh, life ring, which I don't think I'm really sold on. Uh, life ring and SOS, I'm not really sold on. Women for Sobriety is a secular uh, organization for women, and I think that's great. That I know there are uh, uh, women only AA meetings. I've gone to a few, but I think having a a society specifically for women outside of AA is great. Um, moderation management is very science-based, has a lot of steps. I have links to everything, but um, it's it's very science-based. It's very procedural almost. Um, folk time, I mean, it's pretty, 
bogey. Um, and reimagining recovery. I think I have a little bit about those. There's smart, refuge, life ring. Uh, I, I don't really think this is a productive. I, I don't have any numbers or anything, but I don't really, I'm not too jazzed about this one. Um, women for sobriety, yes. Secular, not too. Moderation management. It's, it, it is what it is. It's, it's very procedural, scientific. It's about moderating. Um, not necessarily sobriety and abstinence. Um, this, yeah, neurodiversity, that's good. This is a network I found. Oregon Recovery Network has a wealth of resources for anybody seeking treatment. Unfortunately, this is all on the West Coast. Um, I found another one through them, actually, I emailed them. This is in Pennsylvania, Pro A. Again, a wealth of resources. Well, I will caution that there are some in there. I think I found one that's called Mom's Tell. Is um, I don't I don't know. It's very religious. I don't know, but you know, I'm just so you know, sharing information. Oh, and it's Recovery Month, and here are some more resources that I found. But uh, and now I forget the question. <laughs> No, we were, I think we were talking about um, the uh, types of recovery, whether it's, uh, is it, was it possible if it's, you know, a non-religious or uh, just another way <clears throat> that gives people that are, have the problem with it, the a spiritual program, is there a way, is there a way to recovery? Is there a place for them? Is there a place that they can feel comfortable, which is the key? And yes, there is, based on yeah, this yeah, information. Exactly. You are there's always there's always a place, there's always a way. It's just a question of how much and how willing you are to dedicate to it. You right. know, uh, smart moderation management. I think smart, you don't have to commit to Absence and total sobriety. I think you can do a little bit of uh, managing in smart moderation management. Like I said, is managing uh, refuge sobriety, life ring sobriety, women for sobriety, sobriety, sobriety. But uh, these bo this bottom tier here, moderation, folk time, and reimagining. I think uh, especially these two, moderation and folk time, are more are friendlier to moderating use. Um, I do have a chart here um, to confirm that or to validate that, which I can I can upload um, to the site. But um, yeah, so there are options, there are treatments available, and you know they're willing to hook you in with open arms. Yeah, sure. It's just there's like I you know I language is my thing. The way the way things are conveyed kind of bothers me sometimes, you know, like I said, defects or qualifying and, and all of these different quasi-religious pseudoscientific terminologies that some groups utilize to, to, to get, to involve people, not to get, not to lure people in or not to get people involved, to get people involved, you know, just to, just to help them. I think maybe, 
off-putting to some people and I you know I'm always thinking of ways to include others and, and to allow for diversity in any environment and I think recovery it's in recovery it's especially important because of the the number of addiction and need that goes unreported because of stigmas whether it's you know whatever it's coming from whatever it's based on you know yeah so. And I, I still think that um, it just kind of came to me now. I think that in the big book, that they call it, the AA big book, you can find that there is probably still some, you know, 1935 uh, language in there. And um, at that time back in the 30s the you know the defect of character was one of the better ways that bill was able to describe you know anger bitterness resentfulness things like that and you know to try to say hey that that's you know one of your defects of your particular character and you know we're asking a you know to try these steps are what we're going to use to remove those from you. Um, but I get where um, some of the language, do you remember we read that one piece there and it sure seemed that it was kind of it was poorly written, you know, to really, for somebody to understand, wow, how does that, how do I connect to that? You know, how does that make sense for me? And it was, uh, I can't remember, was it our, the defects of character part? Or I can't remember exactly what we were reading. But I think, and so today, though, and after it, the movement started getting going, uh, to try to get anything changed from what the, you know, the icon of AA wrote, uh, it was probably near impossible to try to, you know, get what he wrote changed uh, to get into, you know, more mainstream and more inclusive. Um, I do know they probably put in the, you know, sexual identity and race, creed, all of those very important things in there. Um, but to change some of the other things, I, I think, you know, for lack of a better term, we'd probably take an act of God to change it. Um, so that's why I think they're, you know, people that are uh, like you and many others, me too, you know, words are important. And um, when it doesn't connect right, then it creates an issue for me, which takes me away from my primary purpose. And that is, you know, to stay clean and sober. Um, I did notice right. something that it's, it's funny how some of these things kind of intertwine. And as you're looking through it, because we may have landed on the same similar page because I have those uh, uh, life ring and things like that in there. Um, two of the things that have helped me uh greatly well there's three things uh it's got 
um, individual therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then the EMDR and other trauma therapies. Um, I had an EMDR session, a 40-minute session the other day, and um, it really walked me through some things that were, in a way, what I said at the end, I said, boy, that those are the things that were haunting me for so long. And they were just things about going to school, going into that particular school where, you know, I wasn't treated very nice and bullies and I was the new kid and, uh, you know, four different schools, things like that. Um, and so we were able to kind of walk through some of those things through this EMDR. And, and then I was at the chiropractor the other day as well. So um, I think there are some value points in a lot of them. But I looked at the AA and uh, Smart Recovery. What they came down to is that they um, are both for the, let's say, the top top two, let's say, out there right now. Um, okay. In the research, it showed that they were um, – AA had a leg up on the smart, but it was it was extremely close, and they were both very valuable, valuable um, programs. And we kind of were talking these, you know, alternate therapies. I think a lot of the alternate therapies that I saw were really kind of based in more of a like an aftercare. You know, what happens after after three months you know you probably have an, an aftercare routine that you do to maintain uh you know the life that you want to maintain you know you get up at a certain time you hopefully you drink coffee <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah the next episode the two unspoken addiction most addictive drugs coffee and Coffee and cigarettes, really. Coffee and cigarettes, um, yeah. Yep. So. Uh, but I did, I did find something now that you're talking about, like, maintenance after. Um, uh, da, 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 maintenance after. But there's something called the maintenance model, the matrix model, which is, like, a short-lived... Um, 16-week treatment approach. It's intensive outpatient, um, and it goes through different steps of of recovery. It goes um, individual. There's different processes involved: individual psychotherapy, early recovery skills, relapse prevention, family education, 12-step programs, urine testing, relapse analysis, and social support groups. So that seems more like um, a behavioral therapy to help acclimate you know the newborns that come out of treatment or addiction uh, to help them acclimate you know and establish routines in in the world gotcha and could that be like on a case by case type basis where uh, you know the treatment center the therapist would recommend <clears throat> that type of reintegration program to society by you know yeah. like maybe a halfway house type of thing yeah. 
And so, yeah, I've, I, I know of a, a person that's close that um, thrived in that particular environment and was able to, you know, maintain and do really, really well. And just this person's just a beautiful soul. And they, um, but once out of it and back to, you know, the regular world, I guess, just couldn't, couldn't do it. Just couldn't, couldn't maintain it but would be the perfect person to say, wow, you are ready. You are a model of what we're trying to achieve here. And we'd love you to come back and tell us, you know, how it went out there. But a month later, it'd just be, they would be right back. And this happened over and over and over and over and over, literally, uh, possibly 15 to 20 treatments, ICU with, you know, blowing a 4.40, you know, a dead uh, on a uh, alcohol level, blood alcohol, and it's just really sad. And now they're like, put away, you know, in kind of behind bars and uh, absolutely thriving again, you know. But out in the world, it's just such a different, just such a different story that, um, and you can't be in aftercare or a halfway house for the rest of your life, or maybe can you? I I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I had, there was someone I became, you know, friendly with when I was in treatment and seemed like they were doing well and they were, they got out of, of treatment and went to a halfway house and then we connected at some point after it was through, the, they were through with that. And in our phone conversations, it was just very, very hectic and I felt like they were hiding something. Turns out they were hiding beers and uh, whatever they were drinking. And I just, you know, I had to cut myself off from that relationship. But I think that's, you know, another example like yours where this person would really benefit from some sort of structure. But how, you know, how can you stay in treatment forever? How can you stay in a halfway house forever? I don't know. Yeah. That's a tricky situation. I mean, that's a tricky situation, but there are treatment programs out there for maintenance. I think you know, like we saw with uh, the Matrix model there and other groups. Yep. So, and, and again, I and think those. Yeah. I just think it can, can still comes down to that one thing. Even um, when you're at your worst, you know, your probably desire to stop is probably at its highest. When. Mm-hmm. At, when you're at your best is when your desire to, you know, stay sober should be its highest, you know, but it wanes. Kind of like, well, you know, maybe I could, I could just have a one or two or, and we always, you know, we know where that can lead. Um, so I'm not too big on the, uh, you know, oh, just try to maintain it model. 
I just, I think that's just kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I agree with you there. So, um, gosh, there was one. Something else I can't recall. Yeah, my my brain had it for a second, and I lost it. Um, so, what I would like to do is, if you can send, you know, go send me the email for the um, with the PowerPoint and the links and everything. Because the only thing I have, I don't oh, have yeah. like I don't have like a website or anything, but I do have that um, Twitter page, and I thought putting that those links out there on the Twitter page would be really valuable. Um, you know, for the folks that are listening, can go to the get on that um, the Twitter page and find it. Or do you have a place on uh, Twitter as well that you you're going to post it? do have a Twitter. I'll post it there. Um, I don't I guess my Twitter handle is um, at Calamity Reeves. I can put that on there and uh, email it to you as well. Definitely. Yeah, because we definitely want to get, you know, keep putting that information out there. Keep, keep looking. Keep doing some more research, doing some things. And um, and if, you know, you find someone that um, might be a good fit for, uh, uh, don't you have a, like an announcement that you wanted to make to the podcast world or no? Um, I'm going to be putting this on my podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. You're going to be putting it out on your... Um, so watch out for that world. Watch out for that world. I'm going to be looking forward to it. Yes. I have no. to. Yeah, so, um, yeah. But hopefully, you know, we can share what we've experienced and curated here with Twitter world and Spotify world and all the other virtual there to get real life help for people. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And um, I think we're going to have to do this again real soon. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. All right. I'll talk to you very soon. And I love technology. <laughs> okay. I love technology.